Welcome to The Dad Presents. Make sure you're following the show wherever you're listening. And wherever you are out in the world, spread that love and liberty. Let's go. Welcome to The Dad Presents. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now, guys, the show has been on hiatus for a month. I know you're used to two shows a week, but man, we needed a break. So much going on over here. Um, so many people reached out. So many. I was, I was blown away, and I want you to know that I appreciate that. Anyway, we're back now, so please make sure you're following The Dad Presents everywhere where we've not been banned, which is, uh, you know, about half of them. Just search The Dad Presents, you'll find us on Twitter. We're now Dad underscore Presents because we still have that original account banned uh, for our podcast we did about Satan's Medicine, Ivermectin. We're still gone on YouTube, so go over on Rumble. Uh, Follow the show, like, share, send it to your mama. Let's party. All right, guys. Let's get into it with our guest today. Today, we have Mike Termat. Mike is an Austrian school economist who worked with the White House Office of Management and Budget Agency. He's taught economics at three universities. He's a family man. He's been a police officer for over a decade in Florida, and he is now seeking the nomination of the Libertarian Party uh, for president of the United States. So that's very exciting. Mike, we're happy to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Matt. Thank you for having me. It's a real joy to be on your uh, show, particularly as a, a fellow father of two. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Always, always like talking to dads who are liberty-loving dads, and uh, you're definitely one of them. So, I, w- I want to hear all about this. Well, we love event. liberty and we love being a dad, but that doesn't mean I want my kids to do whatever they want, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, no, that w- that'd be a bad situation. Um, <laughs> Yeah, let's let's uh, let's start with the economy, because um, that's you know that's your your wheelhouse and that's what's going on in the world right now. It's pretty scary. I think I have a handle on why the failures at SVB and and Silvergate started this current mess yep. that that could just like spiral out of control. But can you give us like a banking for dummies explanation for why all these banks failed? Sure. And and let's remember that in the, the grand scheme of things, in the long-term context, this is not a lot of banks, right? Uh, three banks going down in a, in a couple of weeks sounds scary because it was a brief period of time in which all three went down. But I've been through periods where we lost, you know, dozens uh, in any particular month. Uh, I can assure your listeners that we can withstand a lot worse situations than the the one that we're in now. Well, and I don't sure. believe that I don't believe that we're going to see a, a wave of bank failures going forward, at least not in in the sense that's going to cause the uh, system real problems. Okay, These well, particular- I'm, I'm glad you're on them because I've I've gotten to the point after doing this show for three. You know, this show started off three years ago as just like a a fun parenting show, a call in show, asking advice. And with the COVID lockdowns, we morphed into a show about our, our friggin' rights, you know? Right. Um, and I've kind of become a bit of a doom and gloomer. Sounds like you're a little more white-pilled. So I'm glad we're having you on. Maybe you can maybe you can brighten my outlook a little bit. So why, well, I, why can brighten you- your, I, I can brighten your outlook about the bank failures. I'm still going to share your doom and gloom about a lot of other things. So, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, don't, don't give me too much credit too quick. Uh, these particular banks had weird characteristics that made them the, the first to fail. Uh, they 
had a lot of depositors that were large and therefore uninsured. As you may know, the FDIC, the federal government backs up the FDIC. The FDIC insures deposits up to $250,000 per account. That means that you could have a quarter million dollars of deposit insured. Uh, your wife could, each of your kids could, uh, and then joint accounts get counted separately as well. So for you to be uninsured, you would have to have a tremendous amount of money, right? Mm-hmm. Most banks don't have a significant proportion of their deposit base represented by these types of persons, right? Sure. These are the types of accounts that run quick when they worry about a bank because they're uninsured. Whereas, you know, uh, humans like me, I'm sure, Matt, you're a heavy hitter. You probably have millions of dollars on weird deposits at little tiny banks all over the world. Oh, yeah, one in every state. Mm -hmm. but, But for normal people like me, uh, you know, if I have a thousand dollars in a bank, I know darn well it's insured. If I think the bank is going to get in into a little bit of trouble later on, you know, I'm not all that concerned about it. I'm not going to, you know, pull it out just because I need it to, you know, at, at any cost avoid having it left in there when the bank goes under. By the way, for the benefit of your your viewers, it is a bit of a pain in the neck to get your money back if the bank does close, but it typically opens two days later and the federal government stands behind your deposits under $250,000. So when these banks showed a little trouble, its deposit base in each case ran fast. A significant portion ran out quickly over just a couple of months. And the reason that that became important was because neither one of these banks found it easy to raise money quickly to fill in the gap. And that's because they were heavily invested in bonds that were not performing well because interest rates had gone up. Right. So they're liquidating these bonds, right, uh, to add to their own liquidity but they're losing money every time they sell one, uh, it became public information that they were losing money. Their depositors got nervous and started to run. And now they have to raise more money to fill in that gap. And they got a snowball going in the wrong direction. Yes. Their their asset base and their deposit base are both different than most banks. mm -hmm. So it's unlikely that this is going to result in some weird contagion effect that brings down a lot of other banks. Now, a lot of banks are struggling with the fact that they have higher interest rates well, and they're not making the kind of money they used to. Well, That's a real thing. The, so you, you you said it's because of these, these bonds. This bank had a lot of money in bonds and mortgage, mortgage-backed securities, which they thought were safe investments because the Federal Reserve... Uh, kind of led them in that direction yeah. to believe that interest rates were going to. So when you buy a bond or a mortgage-backed security, you're buying something at an interest rate that is set at that time, and you're locked into that. So when the Fed starts raising the interest rates, they become you, worth less. They become worth less. So when the run starts, now you got so to sell them. So if you have to sell them, you're going to get so ninety-two do, cents on the dollar or some yeah. number. 
Yeah, if that. So are you suggesting that other banks do not hold a lot of these bonds or are you suggesting that you don't expect uh, customers to freak out and start taking their money out of other banks? Both. And most other banks don't have uh, the weird asset portfolio that would make other investors run away from them. So that if they did have to raise money, uh, they could tap into a lot of other credit markets to do that without having to sell off uh, a whole bunch of treasury bonds, for example. They have better access to money. And so they're unlikely to get into liquidity problems. They, they have better access to money, um, but do they really? And, and, from, a, and a smaller percentage of their deposits are uninsured. They Okay. Yes. Because they ha- they're they not dealing with like tech businesses who have, with millions of dollars. But in theory, if, if there was a panic, which could very easily happen and people wanted their money, isn't it true that pretty much all banks are, are banking and fractional reserve at this point and they don't have- oh, sure the cash on hand, like you say, they have uh, liquid assets that they could liquidate to make that happen. But do they really? What kind of assets are we talking about? Uh, No, you're absolutely right. They would have to raise money if there was a run on the bank. Uh, But there's not a real good reason why there would be a run on the bank. Uh, I mean, after all, if you and I were to go to the bank and take our money out, where are we going to put it? Well, I've been putting mine in gold and Bitcoin. I don't, I don't know about Well, and else. maybe that's not a bad idea, but most people don't have access to those types of asset bases themselves. And so a real widespread run on the banking system in general is really unlikely. That's not to say it can't happen. And of course, it can happen to particular institutions. And as we saw from time to time, it does. But that doesn't mean that it's likely to bring down Uh, or challenge the system. The other thing that should be pointed out is that these particular banks were not all that plugged into other banks. You know, it's not like an organization that goes down and, uh, you know, they've got three heavy hitter uh, investors that are other regional banks. And now those banks are challenged. You know, that was not the case. So these are isolated instances in, in terms of their characteristics but also isolated in the sense that they don't have the contractual relationships with other institutions that are going to, you know, threaten the composure of other banks. Okay. Um, okay. But the understand all that 2008, we got into all this and what a government do. They bailed all the banks out. Does right. that a real, not... a real mistake? Almost right. all of them are so a real mistake. We're doing the same thing. They're not calling it a bailout, but it's a bailout. They're, they're backing everything. So yep. if, what what that tells me is that banking losses are socialized. Okay, we have a yep. nationalized banking system where the bankers take none of the the cost. We get all the costs, but if the bank creates do a well, huge incentive for them to take all weird the risk, yeah, because they yeah. get all the profits, but we get all the losses. So why yep. would we not continue to see this over and over and over for the next hundred years? Like wild practices in banking, taking huge taking huge swings for the fence. If you knock one out of the park. You make a trillion dollars, you know, if you foul, if you foul tip it, well, government's got your back. So why would they yeah. not keep doing this? Uh, no, I agree. I, uh, the incentives are being put in place uh, that would uh, that would create that. Uh, and uh, to your point, that it, not only does that incentivize the bankers to take greater risks, but because the government is the regulate the same government organizations, right? 
are in many cases the regulator for these institutions. They see the risks that the banks are taking and will double down on the regulatory environment. So now you got this right. push-pull uh, where the government is trying to limit the risks you take and at the same time incentivizing you to take these risks. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is that, that may sound like, you know, it all balances out, so everything's going to be fine. The problem is that the government likes certain types of risk or I should say, uh, is more tolerant of certain types of risk than others. So, for example, running into 2007, the government was much more tolerant of banks taking risks in mortgage-backed securities, and mortgages in particular, and especially uh, highly leveraged mortgage-backed securities, Securities that were backed by mortgages to individuals that did not have very high uh, credit quality characteristics. Mm-hmm. The government was really pushing investments in these types of assets. Yeah. yeah. So imagine if the government is giving you a hard time about the risk you're taking in other markets, but saying this is a market where you should be playing, you're naturally going to get a lot of flow into those uh, less regulated uh, markets where the government is more tolerant. And then mm-hmm. if the government gets it wrong, as it did in 2005, six, and seven, and the markets go the wrong way in terms of mortgages, now you've got not only a problem that's deep, but broad and wide and across all kinds of financial institutions. And that's why we ran into such a problem with that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you're really onto something. Uh, we do have a real risk uh, over the next couple of decades, if the government continues to send these signals that they will bail people out, it's yeah. a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. So 2008, that entire crisis, I got caught up in that one. I'm, I'm old enough to know I had four houses at the time, lost all yeah. of them. Um, yeah. what w- that crisis was caused by government. They said, Hey, we're going to give everybody, anybody can get a loan. You don't have to put any money down and you pay right. only interest. Like any, any idiot could see that's set up for failure and it failed. Uh, that's the same. And the problem. banks were making good money off of it for oh, hell quite yeah. a few years. Yes. That's the same problem we are now looking at in um, universities uh, where colleges are $50,000 for a terrible education because the government's saying, hey, give anybody a loan. Everybody should be able to go to college. So what do the universities right. do? They jack up their prices because they know anybody can get a loan. Now, now people borrow even more. Out. Now we're all pissed that people have all this debt. Well, yes. you know, which part of that did, you know, which part of that is the surprising element? I don't think any of it. Yes. Now t- on to 2023. This And now they is- want you to bail them out. Of course. And now, yeah. And people and are going to have to that. pay for the education of your own kids in a few years. Yes. Well, I'll, not to I'll mention just... you're going to have to bail out my kids. <laughs> right. Right. Um, because my kids are, you know, a couple of decades ahead of yours. Yep. Um, and then we're on to 2023, this current problem. This one was caused by the, the, the Federal Reserve changing interest rates and government encouraging banks to buy bonds and, and whatnot. What I'm getting at is all three of those problems happened because of government. So isn't the solution to get government out of banking, out of education, out of like all the, let, let the market, let a bank fail, let the market determine whether or not a bank is doing well. And then other banks learn their lessons and are more safe. Isn't that the ultimate solution? Well, of course it is. It is a hundred percent the ultimate solution. I've been a big proponent of, for example, ending the federal reserve system 
Good. Having spent so many years working with the Fed, uh, not as an employee, but I've met with the Federal Reserve uh, Board in the boardroom itself. Uh, my research in the banking industry has been publicly cited by the Fed chairman. Uh, I have a lot of respect for the individuals who work in uh, the the business of regulating banks because they are smart, hardworking, well-intentioned folks who want to make the world a better place. They just cannot live up to the mandate that's been handed to them. They do not realize that they are part of a system that is bound in the long run uh, to failure. The object of the game is to make financial institutions realize that because they're going to bear the cost of their decisions, they need to start making better decisions, whether that's a more diversified uh, portfolio of depositors or assets or greater capitalization or some combination of all three. They need to make better decisions in the long run and not rely on the federal government to either change their decisions or to bail them out uh, on the other end. So, yeah, that's the answer with financial institutions is to deregulate. And with regard to education, not only should the government not be involved, but to the extent to which the government is still engaged in this uh, practice of raising money for primary and secondary education, that money has got to be tied to the students so that families can pick any institution they want uh, to which to send their kids for their education or their kids should be allowed to stay home and the parents can tap into those funds just to get them out of the uh, public school system. Okay. So yeah, let's, let's stop there. You're, so you're, you're talking about school choice kind of, right? Right. Okay. And Los eventually Angeles, getting the government out of it. Yes. So out here in Los Angeles where the teachers union is on another strike, kids are not in school presently. I noticed that. Yes. In Los Angeles what are your kids doing today? Well, my we're outside the Los Angeles district. Luckily, uh-huh. we're in Torrance, so they're in school. But Los Angeles, per child, the city spends fourteen thousand dollars per child to educate. That's as and high. That is as not is. an unusual number nationwide. Well, that's that's where I come from in in Pennsylvania. They spend twenty five hundred, and we got a decent education. Point being, well, I money- appreciate that. When I came from Florida, and it was fourteen thousand. Yeah, the money does not fix the problem because there's so much corruption in government with this money for $14,000 per child. You could have a classroom of 15 kids, pay the teacher a hundred grand, and you still have a hundred grand left over to do whatever administrative stuff you want to do. So clearly this money's being stolen, abused, mismanaged, and there's not been an accounting of it. School choice. I've, 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 we have friends who, even if there are not corruption, the system can't work. The system right. can't work if there's a monop- monopolies don't fail just because of corruption. Right. Monopolies fail because they're crappy business models that survive indefinitely yes. without anyone to shake them up into doing things better. Yes. Schools need, need competition. Absolutely. Uh, whether you decrease the amount of money or increase the amount of money. Uh, is a separate issue. I agree with you wholeheartedly. They've got quadruple the money they need. And private schools prove that every yes. day. Yes. Well, that's what I was going to say. So we have uh, wealthy friends who send their kids to private school. Their private school is $6,000 and it's kicking LA Unified's ass. It's of for $6,000. They are crushing it. These kids are getting a great education, the fine arts, uh, everything. So right. School we, and the we, parents have more control over those schools. Yes, 
deliberate yes because they're they're directly paying for them instead of having the money stolen from them to pay for them well and they don't have to go through a school system that's the size of nebraska right right yes it's much smaller um we tried to get the libertarian party of california we tried to get school choice passed out here last year it it failed I don't under I don't I when I've talked to parents, super liberal parents, super conservative parents, no parents think this is a bad idea. Every right. parent thinks this is a good idea. Oh, you're going to give me back my fourteen thousand dollars and I can educate my kid how I want. Great. I'll send them to St. Mary's private school and still put money back in my pocket. Like and schools that don't yet exist, that will exist when the money is attached to the uh, yes. child. It'll get more. And, and I more believe efficient. that is the biggest argument in the long run for why school choice is so important because there are communities that don't have a private school today Mm -hmm. because the private school cannot compete in that jurisdiction because families don't have a great deal of money. Right. Right. And so the archdiocese or Bob's uh, chop shop uh, elementary school isn't setting up shop there because they don't think that they can make a a buck at it, make a go of it and stay uh, above water financially. But when, uh, the money is attached to the kids. Those communities will have private schools move yes. in and they will have a real choice. Yes. Shit. I'll start a private school in South Central Compton right, right now. I, I work there every day. There's money to be made there just like there is everywhere else. If you give them right. $14,000, there's money to be made. Um, the only argument I've heard against it is that um, some of these inner city schools will shut down because nobody will want to go there. And that's not an argument against it. That's that's an argument to move forward with it. Like, yes, shut down those shitty schools where they have, you know, bars surrounding the campus and you got to go through a metal detector. Those are terrible schools with terrible teachers, terrible administrators where nobody gives a shit. So that's another argument for well, it. So why can't we pass it? That's right. And either they're terrible or they're not. I mean, if they're not terrible, They'll be able to stay in business and make exactly. a go of it if they're really is, you know, half as good as the teachers uh, their claim they are. Right. Yes. And if they can't compete, uh, then they need to be left behind. We do not get upset in other industries when people go out of business. You know, mm-hmm. nobody protests uh, marching around the block when some car dealership goes out of business because some guy opened another car dealership a mile away and ran the first one out. You know, that's just not something that we get upset about. It just happens. And then that facility gets acquired by the new car dealership or it gets turned into a a restaurant or something. And we all move yeah. on. Well, unless that's that the, dealership the, is Ford, then we bail them out. But yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it depends on who's in the White House, I think. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and these days, maybe it doesn't any longer depend on who's in the White House, unfortunately. But you're right. Uh, President Obama did have some weird affinity for Ford that I couldn't ever quite figure out. Yeah. All right. So I, w- I want to talk more about the schools. I also want to get into uh, police reform because you're you that it's another area you're well versed in. But I, I don't want to abandon the economy yet because there's many more things that concern me. Um, I, I like tell me your I, worries. OK, well. I've said on this show, like I've done dedicated entire shows to this, that I don't think most people understand what the the Federal Reserve is or does. I don't think most people understand inflation. I don't think most people understand what money is. I don't think people care that we have it easy. We get our money. We feed ourselves. It's great. But 
the only thing at this point that gives the dollar real world value that I can see is that petroleum agreement with Saudi Arabia. And that might be coming to a close. And if that happens, uh, I see us going to nuclear war to save it. Like it, it could be the complete collapse of the dollar. Could it not? Like yesterday, China and Russia cut a deal where Russia, where, where China will buy Russia's gas and Russia will use the Chinese yuan, however you say that word, I don't know, to, for all their international, bi- okay, all their international business dealings. That's bad, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's not good for our dollar, but the dollar's value comes from uh, people. Fundamentally, it comes from people's willingness to uh, trade for the dollar. People want the dollar. They want to invest in dollar-denominated assets, and they want to hold dollars in their portfolio. And this is even more fundamentally. Uh, because the dollar is what's used in so many financial transactions, retail, wholesale, financial transactions around the world, especially in the U.S. economy, of course. But you know, virtually half of the value of the dollar, of the use of the dollar, is outside of our borders. Yes. So to your point, yes, the value of the dollar is uh, from time to time it can be deeply affected. Uh, by changes in the extent to which it's used uh, outside of the United States. For the dollar to lose value relative to the rest of the world, uh, there would have to be another currency or group of currencies that were to uh, gain value because people were interested in in using those in transactions. Right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Are we on and, the precipice of that? Well, uh, at the moment, there's not really a great candidate to challenge the dollar in a meaningful sense. Yes, the you know renminbi, the the Chinese yuan is uh, is is being used a lot because China is expanding its economy, particularly in an international stage. But if you had a choice in terms of where you would put discretionary money, you would not invest it in Chinese-backed assets uh, or currency. Over the long run, sure, that could be a rival uh, to the primacy of the dollar. The same thing with the euro. But those economies, uh, while not as badly managed as the Chinese economy, they're nowhere near uh, as effectively managed as the United States economy. So in the long run, uh, it's not clear that there's going to be a challenge to the dollar coming from there either. Now that's that's an outlook for the next you know decade or two. But in the in the longer term outlook, you know, over the course of the rest of the century, it is clearly possible that somebody is going to figure out that economics works best when the government works least. They're going to tax their corporations at zero. They're going to tax their uh, individual economic base at at a much lower rate than the United States and Europe. Uh, They're not going to have a communist party running things. I don't know what country this is going to, this is some country we're making up in our head, right? It could be anybody. It could be one of the countries we're thinking of, or it could be someone that comes just, you know, out of the blue. It could be Saudi Arabia. And all of a sudden they just take off. Mm -hmm. 
And over the course of a few decades, that could mean that they are issuing a currency that everybody wants to use. Uh, things could change, for example, with blockchain technology. Right. If there's another currency like Bitcoin, right, or another nation's currency that's running on a blockchain uh, that makes the U.S. dollar obsolete because, for example, the possibility of the U.S. Federal Reserve System issuing its own uh, blockchain currency and then using it to spy on people, which mm-hmm. sounds not that far-fetched anymore. Well, it's coming in July with Fed now, but go on. Right. So it's completely possible that we shoot ourselves in the foot there and someone else starts issuing a currency that might turn out to be Bitcoin or Ethereum that people want to use in the economy of the future uh, for, in particular, smart contracting, for example. Mm -hmm. I think our economy is going to go through a change over the next uh, 5, 10, 15 years. It's really going to be profound. And it's going to create huge demand for blockchain-based currency. And whoever captures that market will be able to challenge uh, the market for the dollar. Yeah. I'm well, skeptical that that'll be the euro or the or renminbi, but um, it certainly could be uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, or someone we haven't thought of. Yeah, I mean, El Salvador is not exactly the economic uh, shining city on the hill, but they've already converted to Bitcoin. They they, yeah. they took that first step. Um, yeah. So then, what? Ha- and they use okay. a lot of dollars at the retail level. Yeah. Street street transactions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Are, are a lot of dollars. What happens when let, let's just let's just take this China experiment further. The, the one thing that gives me hope is that China is communist. They're doomed to fail. Right. Yeah. It, it's just going to happen. The matter. The question is when. But how big can they get first if China and, and, and what that failure looks like? Yeah. Yeah. And the fallout from that. What happens if China says, you know, if they start playing hardball and they're like, we no longer want dollars for our goods because they make everything number one and number two uh you guys owe us a lot of money uh we don't want that paid back in dollars anymore is that a possibility uh sure it is um you know they could uh, unload their holdings of dollar backed uh, assets uh that would naturally depress the markets for those yeah, but so, other people okay. will other so, people will pick up the slack who who if china st- stops buying china the, is not 25% of the world okay but they're a would, significant piece so i don't want to downplay it so my two questions based hurt. on what you just said is why number one why would china not do that that seems like a smart move on their behalf and number two who would pick up the balance of buying those notes so that we can ten- continue these money printers uh, all of the other international and domestic investors who buy notes now, the bulk of uh, the market for treasury bonds, bills, securities in general are not are not Chinese, right? They play a significant role. And so those markets would take a hit, no question about it. And, and that would not be a good thing. On the other hand, it is also true that the Chinese have made these decisions based on their own best interest. Uh, If they decided to operate differently, which they could, uh, it is presumably because their interests would have changed or they're just putting something ahead of their economic interest. 
You know, they think it's going to hurt us more than it's going to hurt them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would, I would be skeptical that that would actually be the case. Um, I would, if, if I were an economy in the world that represented, uh, you know, 20% of the world's economy and the United States represents 25%, I don't know that those are the right numbers, by the way, but ballpark, I'm not sure I would want to divorce myself from the U S economy. Okay. But you're not, you're, you're a libertarian. You're not a power hungry dictator in a, in a, in another country, right? So, well, this goes to your point. What happens when they head toward failure? What does that failure look like? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there could be economic warfare that hurts everybody. You know, I'm saying I wouldn't do it. That doesn't mean they wouldn't do it, right? right? Exactly. Yes. Uh, but it also means, uh, do they become militarily more aggressive? Right. I don't know. I think that that is a possibility, either because you know, some weird sense that they could make money off of uh, capturing Taiwan in the short run or, you know, some other uh, nation or properties or sea bases or something in the long run, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether that's true or not, maybe less obvious than the possibility that they might think that it is in their, in their interest. Uh, Do they need uh, political victories? For example, uh, a decade from now, does the Communist Party think we need to to do something really extraordinary to hold power at home? Uh, do they feel like they need to do something really extraordinary and and evil to intimidate other players in the Pacific? Mm-hmm. Because they think that, you know, the world, this is a, a typical communist view of the world, to your point, that you know, they might feel that the world is a zero sum game and India and Australia are eating our lunch. So we need to kick their ass. Yeah. Uh, You know, that might not be an economically correct analysis. uh, But to your point, yeah, you could imagine a communist making that kind of mistake and lashing out in a military sense. Yes, absolutely. And and yeah, I can also see us lashing out in a military sense if, if we get to that point. I can see it getting real ugly. Um, all right, let's, let's, Me too. I let's think shift, you're right about that. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit. I don't want to spend the whole time on the economy. Um, but I, I do want to ask this, this one last question. Um, and this, this pertains to the culture wars. Now we've been really caught up in the culture wars for the majority of my adult life and my tagline about it forever. And, and the tagline on the show is I kind of say that they use the culture wars. And by they, I mean, we, we say they a lot. By they, I mean the elites, the people with the billions of dollars who are the puppet masters of government. They use the bankers. They use the culture wars to get us to hate each other, right? You hate your neighbor, your neighbor hates you, so that you don't notice as they're robbing you blind with these horrible banking practices that cause recessions and then skyrocketing because they make money on the way up, they make money on the way down. And we don't. Am I wrong there? Um, and if I'm not wrong, how do we get people to care more about economics? Because it's so boring to most people. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. I would broaden it, however. I don't think it's merely uh, financial interests. Uh, I think that politicians, I think that media companies, uh, I think that uh, the political donor class, 
whether they have financial interests or not. These are all people who uh, gain power, accrue power to themselves by convincing American voters, American citizens, that their particular party is the way to go or their particular politician or their particular philosophy is the way to go. And this is where authoritarianism comes from in a democracy, right? Mm -hmm. We often wonder, you know, how is it that we see authoritarianism and authoritarian uh, dictatorial leaders come to power in a place where they at least ostensibly started out with democratic institutions in place and seemed on a, you know, on a good roll. Where it comes from is this idea well, in the United States, as an example, we we bifurcate uh, our duopolistic control of of the political system, and then along with that, we bifurcate all the the media that goes along with that. Right. So we've got Americans who get their news from one pool of resources, and other Americans get their news from another pool. And so we naturally have these situations where there's no value in a politician trying to reach across the aisle. Right. There's very little reason for any American now to see any value in a politician from the other side, or even to work particularly hard at understanding the viewpoints of, of a neighbor with, uh, with a different political philosophy. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. This whole concept of not being able to get along with people at the Thanksgiving dinner table is not something that even crossed our minds in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. This is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, Well, new in this century. It wasn't so different in the 19th century, but it's relatively new in the, you know, since the 20th century and the 21st century. And this sets up these situations where politicians come to power by appealing to a relatively small number of people in the base of their party. And so they're able to leverage Americans' fear of the other side and effectively say, look, you know, what you really need to fear is that other idiot coming to power. If you give me more power, I'll be able to protect you from that. Yes, fear is very effective. Yeah. And so you don't need to worry so much about the loss of your civil liberties. Uh, You don't need to worry about the loss of, uh, for example, your government's adherence to the Constitution. What you really need to worry about, you know, good, good fellow Republicans is the Democrat coming to power Mm -hmm. or or vice versa. Yeah, but they've and, been shitting all over our, our constitutional rights. And they've for both been crapping no over the Constitution for a generation now. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was younger, it was fairly commonplace for Republicans to take their agenda pretty seriously, especially in terms of being fiscally conservative. And that's not really the case anymore. You, no, you not see, at all the case. Well, it's not. Well, being fiscally conservative, that's what I'm talking about. Getting Americans to care. Being fiscally conservative is not yeah. a political winner. Nobody votes right. for the guy who says we're going to buckle down and take one on the chin and and go back to sound money. That's not going to win. No, it's not. It's it's a it's a real uphill uh, climb. The Republican number one uh, objective is to keep a Democrat out of power. Mm-hmm. And, and same thing on the Democratic side, right? When when I was younger, it was not at all unusual for Democrats to have a fairly firm anti-war position. 
Right. You're not going to find that anymore. <laughs> no, you know, yeah, that's the opposite. That ship is. Yeah, you, we left that way behind. Yeah. Uh, you know, their number one uh, objective is to keep a Republican out. of Well, power. well, there well, there you go. OK, so so two things that, that you're hitting on. And those those are really the two issues that matter. There's the economy and uh, Republicans used to be good on that. And there's there's uh, not fighting wars. Democrats used to be good on that. Now they both share the same views on both of those, with the exception of a which is spending people. your money. Spending your money to fight wars to get them rich. Okay, so what you're talking about is the politicians want to retain power. That makes yeah. sense. You know, we know power is corrupting. Ultimate power is ultimately corrupting, or whatever the quote is, right? So power is corrupting. But the bank. So this is what I'm talking about. The bankers. What do they want? They want more money. So the bankers use the politicians. They they fund their campaigns. They own them to get the politicians to write laws to tilt the game in their favor to help them get rich. And the politicians use that power they get to hold on to their power. So it's a system that has gotten so wildly big and out of control. It doesn't seem fixable at this point. It's too big. Government is too big to fail. Uh, Government is uh, too big for the players in it to fail. Yes. I do worry that toward the end of uh, this century, the federal government of the United States is is headed toward a financial failure. Yes. Um, it'll it, it'll be after I'm gone. Uh, but, you know, you and your kids might have to uh, worry about this in a, in a real way. And that that would bring down the dollar, of course. Um, there are ways to stop it. Whether we have the moral backbone, whether we have the institutions in place to pull off what it would take to stop it, the jury is still out on that. I think you are quite right uh, to be worried in an, in an existential way regarding the government of the United States. I also worry about what that government does on its way out, just like I worry about the Chinese Communist Party, if that economy falters as badly as I think it probably will. I also worry about what the federal government of the United States looks like when it oh, runs yes. into financial crisis over the next uh, couple of decades. Because I, 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 would, I would say that we're in what we would call a pre-crisis mode right now. You know, the, the government still meets its obligations, right? You don't, you don't, let me interrupt there. You don't need to wonder what they would do. We've already seen it with their COVID response. They will do whatever they need to do. They will lock you in your home. They will yeah. take away every civil liberty you have. That's what they will do. Well, you know, um, liberals love to, during Trump, they love to scream about fascism. I don't think they know what fascism is. We, we do have fascism right now. We have fascism is a, a public private partnership. We have bankers feeding politicians and politicians giving the bankers hand jobs. That is fascism. That's what we have right now. And fascism, they will put their boot on your neck when they need to. They, they will when they need to. And uh, it's limited only by your imagination as to how they will uh, do that if they run into uh, financial difficulty. Yeah, they ran into some political challenges recently, and they were more than happy in too many cases to use COVID as a political weapon. And you're right, we saw how that played out. So I do believe that there's no longer a question as to politicians' willingness to use whatever tool that they can access 
Mm -hmm. Uh, My only question is, you know, exactly in what ways that plays out when the federal government's challenge uh, really comes from the inside, when it's really a matter of not being able to to meet financial obligations. You know, that I believe that that probably looks like, uh, you know, uh, taking over the the banking system, for example, I think it means a direct control by the executive authority over the issuance of money. For example, you know these are things that Fed now. I'm sure you're you familiar see, with Fed now, right? Uh, yeah, I spent a lot of uh, time with the Fed, um, but right now, executive authorities don't have direct control over our monetary policy. We need to make it even more difficult for inflation to take place before it's too late. I'm a big proponent of getting rid of the Federal Reserve System because I believe that the Fed is just utterly incapable, notwithstanding how smart the people are that work there and the well-meaning nature of them, they just cannot live up to the mandate that has been given to the Federal Reserve System in terms of controlling inflation. And I believe that we need to replace Federal Reserve monetary policy the discretion that they have today with a rules-based system. And I believe that the way to do that, we can all have a food fight about what we believe that the rule ought to be, but at the very least, we need to agree that they need to lose their discretion and a rule needs to be imposed on them. And what I would go with is the Milton Friedman 1980s idea of requiring the monetary base of the United States, the amount of dollars in the system, to be allowed to grow at a fixed rate per year come hell or high water so that we'd be able to interpret changes in inflation and deflation as being market forces without trying to guess you know what is due to strange changes in in fed policy you know the past quarter and as we've all seen the fed uses that to drive inflation when it feels like it can get away with it so we need to take away that discretion yeah yeah. Um, and well, yes, you, you, you talk about that on your website. Um, getting, yeah. getting, getting back to what you're talking about with COVID and being that you're from Florida, uh, Florida did better than anywhere, right? Uh, with COVID, yeah. but even yeah. Florida shut down the schools for a little bit. Even Florida wasn't yeah. beyond taking away yeah. our, our rights. And, yeah. and, you know, you can't kiss grandma goodbye when she's going to die. It, it, it is interesting uh, what it is we characterize as having done the best, right? Right. Yeah. You don't have to be that good to be number one. Exactly. It's pathetic. Um, though I do, do I, I do admire the way Ron DeSantis finally stood up. Um, it, you know, Somebody should have been there from the start. Anyway, my point being children's as a, as a result of shutting down schools out here, we were shut down for more than a year. And that yeah. zoom school was utterly worthless, like just worse than worthless. It was torture. In California is one of the worst. Yes. So as a result of all of that kids testing scores in every state in the nation, including Florida are dramatically down as a result. Yeah. So we abused our kids. Uh, you can't tell me otherwise. How do we yeah. now recover from that? If you were president, how do you fix what they have done to our kids? You need to decentralize all of the power, and then you need to move the debate toward uh, number one, school choices we were discussing. Uh, and number two, 
keeping any sense of centralization out of the conversation. We have to we have to end institutions like the Department of Education that railroad uh, school systems, state systems into doing what it is the federal government wants to do. We cannot any longer be in the business of taxing people and then giving the money back to them in the form of a bribe or extortion to follow policies that the federal government wants to follow. And the reason for that is twofold. Number one, because we don't want states to all be the same. That's when you get into real problems. You need states to be able to go in you know, 50 different directions so you know which ones suck even worse than the best ones four years later, which is what you know we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that we need to decentralize the power because we see that, to your point, it does corrupt. We can't have agencies that think that their job isn't merely to help sort out medical research, but it also includes opining on, or worse, conducting the closure of schools or any other businesses around the United States. Right. This idea that the CDC ought to have some sort of authority over our economic lives or the lives of our children is almost laughably stupid. It it would be laughable were it not so harmful. Yeah. You know, who is it that thought it would be a good idea to give a bunch of research, has been, would be, wannabe research doctors authority to do anything else but read research papers? Yeah. Like, that should not be a thing. Yeah, you, you say it's stupid. Um, and I, I tend to take the other approach where I think it is evil. It was all intentional. They wanted to shut down schools and they wanted to shut down businesses. You know, Walmart did okay. Amazon did okay. You know, it was just mom, pa on the corner who who suffered from it. Um, you told you sure. what, what you just. But went there are through. plenty of people in the CDC who are well-meaning. They just have yes. no idea what they're doing when it yeah. comes to the economy. Individuals, I mean, there are sure. some really profoundly stupid ideas floating around that institution. Oh yeah, by people who actually think that they're doing right by the American people. To me, that's much scarier than the, you know, evil overlords uh, like I probably shouldn't name names and call them evil at the same time. But to your point, there, there are people at the top who really are power hungry. Yes. And to me, that is. But even those people, you said the people at the CDC think they're doing good. Even the people at the top, the power hungry people, even they justify it to themselves as they're doing good. Even as we're executing genocides uh, across the world, it's justified as we are doing a good thing for the greater good. That that may be, but they're so power hungry that that I, I think that is a form of evil to your point. Yeah. But there are, you know, the blob of uh, civil servants underneath that, uh, those people are just a combination of duped and, and, and dupes, dupers and dupees. You know, they, they don't know anything about what to do with the implications of the research. And, and yet they're being asked to form these opinions that are totally inappropriate. And they're so easily manipulated by the, the power hungry players at the top. Yeah. What, what you just told me is how we, we fix it so that it doesn't happen again. Um, and I like all of that. 
Okay. And maybe this isn't a question for someone running for president because I guess president needs to fix it so it doesn't happen again. But what I was more looking for is how do we undo the damage that has already been done? Some of these kids, and we know them out here, won't go outside. They have no social skills. They're dumb. Um, they have, they're riddled with anxiety. They exist only in social media. How do we fix the damage done to the kids that we caused through COVID? Yeah, that is a, uh, I, I fear, a longer term project than these kids have to go. Uh, that sounds like a pretty depressing answer. I think it is a pretty depressing answer, and it speaks to uh, how important it is not to make these mistakes in the first place, because you have a relatively finite period of time during which to do right by these children. Mm -hmm. And if you screw it up for a period of time that may sound kind of short to someone who's a grown up, you know, two or three years, that's a long time uh, in, in terms of the cycle of development for a, for a child. So the catching up can be uh, very difficult. It does speak to the need to accelerate school choice programs. I wish uh, that it were an accelerant to the political viability of a voucher system. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as thoroughly as I would have expected, and certainly not as I would have hoped. It has been an accelerant to the stay at home, right? The homeschooling yeah, movement. Yeah, that's and, grown. and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have not seen quite the exodus to private schools that I would have expected. And so for this wor uh, reason, I still worry about where we are culturally in the United States. There seems to be such a resilient uh, backing politically of the public school system that it's mm -hmm. really uh, disturbing. I think it's a cultural problem. Yeah. We need to get the message out. And I think that that's one of the things that a libertarian uh, national presidential uh, campaign can do, but it is yeah. not easy. Yeah. Um, fixing, fixing some of these children uh, may not be possible. And that's scary because what what we're looking at present day society we are presently dealing with the consequences of what we allowed to happen at our universities 30 years ago that's what we're dealing with now these universities right. got infiltrated with communists and now we got a bunch of people in their 30s working out there in society who don't understand economics who think right. that boys can be girls and girls can be boys and so on and so forth now we're we have and they don't understand the first amendment yes now we have a young, you know, they don't at all. Now we have a younger generation who is damaged by COVID. You're saying we might not be able to fix some of them. We might not. We're going to be dealing with that 30 years from now when these people are the ones running the show. It's really scary. Yeah. It's a national problem. I hope you're not looking to me for an easy solution. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, parenting has got to be part of that, which is why we need to get the message out, not just to politicians and not just in the context of voting. But in the context of what you can do for your child to recognize that, I don't believe that the answer is throwing a lot of money at public schools. Yeah, that's what I they're going think... to do, though. That's what they're do for sure. That it's a big piece of what a lot of people are trying to do. I, I think that uh, we need to find a way to leverage that concern into a willingness to do things differently. Uh, maybe that means partial voucher programs in certain areas. In other words, uh, 
if there, if someone's going to throw extra money at it, it has to be at the parents. You know, here's uh, $2,000 uh, to, to backfill your child's education. That cannot go to the public school system. You know, that has got to be a way to get parents used to the idea of acquiring educational services outside of the system mm -hmm. as a stepping stone toward getting people familiar with the idea that you yeah. can acquire all of your education outside of the public school system. Yeah, it's a good idea. It's things, it's it's things like that, that that we need to leverage into a political awareness and, yeah. a, and a parental awareness. Yeah, that I mean... That, Giving money to the parents is a good idea. Uh, we're what we're more likely to see, at least out here in California, is reparations. So I, you know, like any, right? That, that that's what they're trying to do now. I I don't know. We um, need reparations for your kids. Yes, exactly, exactly. Thank right. you. Right, irrespective um, of what color they are, if they've been cheated out of their education. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of parents would feel like they're owed something for that. Yeah. Yep. And and what I fear is that when someone comes to that realization, it's going to be not a voucher, not a check, not resources. It's going to be, uh, how about summer school at the public school? Right. That's ex exactly what it's going to be. I know that's what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, all right. We're, we're, we're coming up on time and I've not even asked you about policing. So let's talk about policing. You, 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 you are a policeman. Um, what side of the defund police line do you fall? What's what's your plan with policing? Honestly, I I retired from the police department 18 months ago. I truly believe that the political stance that we should be defunding the police is a lazy way out. I don't think the problem is that we have too many police officers. The problem is the way that we manage them. Similarly, I think uh, on the on the right side uh, of the political uh, spectrum, the idea that we need to support police no matter what, no matter what they do, we stand behind them. I'm with the blue is equally lazy mm -hmm. and equally uh, unhelpful. Mm -hmm. There are things that we can do to improve police culture that I believe that we need to do. Police culture is slowly uh, going in the right direction in the United States. But there are things that we can do to accelerate that process, tangible things and immediate things. Uh, one of the things I talk about most is replacing qualified immunity with an obligation for officers to carry their own private sector liability insurance, uh, just like uh, physicians, for example, uh, other people who are in high liability uh, industries. In other words, I believe that we need to make the business of policing more like other businesses, where uh, the, the, the best get paid more, uh, the mediocre get paid less, the crappy get fired. There's incentives to do a good job. There's competition for the best police officers. Another reason why they would make more. And, uh, look, if you're not good at your job, if your insurance company comes to the conclusion, you're not a good risk, you're going to get priced out of the market, uh, just based on your uh, liability premiums. That's the way we want the market to work. Mm -hmm. And I would say that it would be terrific if local politicians were better at holding police departments and police officers accountable, but they're not for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is so many of them are politically captured by the, the police unions. By the way, this happens exactly the same way 
for teachers unions, right? Uh, but because voters are not aware that things could be better as well. Voters typically, to your point, they fall into a couple of different buckets of defund the police because the Democrats aren't giving them any better solution. They're just anti-cop. Mm-hmm. Well, most Americans are not anti-cop. They just don't like a lot of what they see and wish things were managed differently. Uh, and Republicans aren't working at reform because they just want to position themselves as pro-cop. Well, most Americans are pro-cop, but that doesn't mean they're idiots right. and don't think that that we can't make things better because yeah. we can. Uh, well, so you're talking what you're talking about. There are the two sides you're talking about nuance. And unfortunately, I don't I don't know what it is, but I don't think most humans are capable of nuance. We need like a snappy tagline we can attach our entire identity to defund police or back the blue or whatever. Like that's that that's what grabs people, not not the nuance of the type of ideas you're sharing. Sure. Now, isn't the OK, so you describe some things like competitive pay. Good idea, like pay cops based on performance. Great. But that doesn't happen in government. And isn't the entire pro- the, the entire problem with policing the same as education? Like it's a monopoly. Why can't why can't why do we need government to have a monopoly on law enforcement? Why can't that be something that's privatized also? Uh, it, it can be. Um Unlike education, there's a geographic component to police work. In other words, in education, you can send your kid to a school that's different from uh, the kid next door. Indeed, you can send your two kids to two different schools, right? I did that Mm -hmm. a lot uh, with mine growing up. With police work, there is a certain element of geography that that turns out to matter a great deal in terms of uh, cost. Uh, So... If at some point you do have to have, a, you know, a collectivist, uh, a communal approach to making decisions as a community about the ethics, uh, the training of your police department, how you want your police department to behave. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I believe that these decisions need to be at, a, at as granular a level as possible. I'm not a big fan of, for example, someone I heard the other day say, uh, the problem is the local police departments, we should have state police run the whole state. Oh, the whole, no. oh boy. Right. Uh, that'll make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it has to be as small as possible. And to your point, competitive, we need a situation in which a police department can be replaced by another police department. Right. Uh, that's what I would call privatization. Yeah. Well, so the city I work, go ahead. In education, that's or not education, in healthcare, that's kind of what we have. We have Medicare and then we have Blue Cross. Why can't we have uh, the Los Angeles Police Department, the Torrance Police Department, but then also Mike's uh, Mike's private shop police department and every community can decide which one they want? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly the direction we need to go. The city I worked for only had two choices. Uh, us, the police department, or they could dump us lock, stock and barrel, uh, which they considered doing from time to time. They could dump us completely and hire the sheriff's office to police our town. Well, uh, knowing that does change things a little bit. You know, it means that uh, your chief and your leadership in the police department are going to 
do a good job. They're going to try to do a good job of being responsive to the mayor and the commissioners. Mm -hmm. That's what you want. But you want the mayor and the commissioners to have as many choices as possible. Uh, Not just the police department we have at the moment and the sheriff's office, but to your point, maybe there's a private sector organization that we could bring in uh, that would be fully trained and qualified. We could hold them as uh, accountable as as we would, uh, you know, any other em- employee. Mm-hmm. I don't think the the silver bullet is necessarily who writes the check, you know, whether it's the city whose name is on that check or if the city is contracting a private sector organization that then writes the checks. What really matters is the competition. Yes, there's got to right? be competition, rewards and consequences. We have Absolutely. none of that. There's there's none of that. You know, any parent knows that. Right. If you if you have uh, rewards and punishments for certain behaviors, you get more and less of those behaviors because of the rewards and punishments. If your salary is 80,000, whether you're the best cop on on the planet or the worst cop on the planet. Well, why am I going to be a a good cop? I might just go spend my day knocking off gangbangers and stealing their loot. Right. Like uh, possibly. But what it what what I found that it really does to so many officers is it. It undermines your interest in being great. Yes. You know, it, it, humans are naturally a bit lazy. You know, if I find out I can put in 85% of the effort and make 100% of the pay. Yes. You know, all of a sudden. Well, you just, you just described why communism. Yeah. That's why communism fails. You just described it. Humans are lazy. And if I can do 85% and still get 100%, that's what I'm going to do. Everybody. 99.9% of people. Well, that's right. I mean, a little bit, right? I mean, it affects every individual in a different way, but it serves no one's interest. So we absolutely need to get to a system where we can evaluate who the best officers are, uh, get rid of the ones who aren't, create competition for those best officers, uh, create competition for the the organizations, you know, the management Mm -hmm. of those, uh, which, like I say, we have a little bit today, but not much. And changing, changing your agency is hellacious. You know, anyone who's been through it knows you don't want to go through it twice in a decade. Hmm. So uh, that's not the system that we want. And given that politicians seem unwilling, un- unable to provide that service, I think that having a third party outside liability insurance provider helps get you at least a little bit of a check from the outside at uh, asking for the information that's required to evaluate who's a good risk in terms of an officer and who's not, uh, and exerting some price pressure on that. That's not a silver bullet, but I think it's a huge step in the right direction of accountability. Oh yeah. I mean, liability insurance works, works in the industry I I came up in, which is healthcare, like the, uh, depending on your risk level, you're going to pay a higher premium and your risk level is determined by your performance, so on and so forth. Good idea. Uh, Mike, Mike is running to be president. He's looking for the libertarian nomination. Uh, All you Liberty lovers out there, uh, check him out, Mike, where can they find you? Where can they learn more about you? Um, Where can they get your platform? All that stuff. Well, I would give him the home address, but it's a long walk from any uh, reasonably urban uh, bus stop. So how about the uh, website? Sure. Go to MikeTremont.com. You'd have to spell it right, though. Yeah. That's a challenge. M-I-K-E-T-E-R-M-A-A-T, two A's, 
MikeTremont.com. You can email me at Mike at MikeTremont.com. Uh, you can also go just to our platform, goldnewdeal.org. Uh, don't go to goldnewdeal.com. They'll try to sell you something, hmm. which is probably not a bad idea. I'm not, I'm, you know, if, if you want to invest in gold, that's probably not a bad idea, right? right? But you wouldn't find our our uh, campaign platform there. You'd have to go to goldnewdeal.org. Uh, okay. And that's great. my real email address. So you email me and we can have a conversation. Excellent. Um, are we going to see any like libertarian debates coming up? Anything like that yes. with you and some other candidates? When, when can we look forward to that? Uh, we've had uh, a couple. Uh, we had one, for example, on site in North Carolina. Uh, we're going to have one in uh, Seattle on uh, Sunday. Larry Sharp, oh. S-H-A-R-P-E. He's been on the, the show He is for times. electable, Larry always says. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry Sharp is hosting a series. He's had one already. I don't know when the next one will be, but uh, so does that mean Larry? Out. Larry is not running this year. Larry is not running. Okay, he is uh, committed to uh, hosting debates and helping everyone along. Uh, so uh, we're we're grateful for his uh, assistance. I'm a big Larry Sharp fan, so if he were running, uh, I would feel great about his candidacy. But but he's not. Yeah, he's excellent. Mike, you're excellent too. We appreciate your time. Uh, you, sh- you shared a lot of good stuff. Everybody, uh, go check it out uh, one more time. Gold, say it again. Gold New Deal. Gold New We're Deal. Poking fun at the Green New Deal. We're poking fun at the original uh, New Deal. You get that. Yes. Goldnewdeal.org. O R G. Goldnewdeal.org. All right. Thank you so much, Mike. Take care. Good Thank luck. Thank you. You take care. You got a great program. Thanks, Mike.